State political science students present In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast covering state building, foreign policy, political economy, and civil society in the wake of the USSR. Welcome to In the Shadow of the Kremlin. In this episode, we'll be discussing shock therapy in Russia in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. Welcome in here with Noah and Jacob once again. So why don't you guys just go ahead and say hello so we know you're there. Hey, this is Noah. This is Jacob. Okay, awesome. So recently in the news, a lot of focus on the Russian economy has centered around the post-COVID-19 recovery efforts, as well as potential impacts from climate change in the future. There are also the effects of new U.S. and Western sanctions related to the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, which these just were even changes in the news this past week. However, some economic experts are still predicting massive economic growth for Russia in 2021 and into 2022. So definitely when looking at the state of the Russian economy today, a lot of factors are in play. So what do you guys think the future looks like for Russia's economy? Do you feel massive growth is likely, or will U.S. sanctions or climate change cause some major problems? Yeah, I feel as though um, the sanctions, international sanctions, and um, the drop in oil prices has obviously been bad for Russia. The, the economy has taken a downturn. However, the trends were going back up after 2016. Um pre-pandemic and it shows that the pandemic um they had less than four percent decline in gdp which actually is uh they fared better than the u.s in that regard um but with new sanctions from the u.s um still recovery from coronavirus um and climate change like you said jared there's a lot of um extreme weather going on or the government money whether or not they acknowledge that it's climate change and they're greatly dependent on um, energy exports for their economy um, toward their GDP. So that would take a huge shift to um, move away from carbon. And, um, but it, it might be something they have to address with all the costs involved. Yeah. And I think that the, the less of an impact on the Russian economy that was expected uh, during the COVID pandemic, um, that mainly just signifies a stable economy that doesn't necessarily, you know, point directly to uh, extreme growth afterwards. That just means that they had a very stable economy. They were able with monetary uh, policy to kind of control the reset, the artificial recession that was the COVID pandemic. Um, I would agree that I, I don't think that Russia's economy is going to take off very drastically higher than any other countries. I mean, obviously every country coming out of the COVID pandemic is going to have an economic increase. Um, I just, I I don't think that there's anything specific about Russia that's going to be um, causing it to lead the pack in terms of economic growth. And then as Jacob said before, you know, the, the new state, sanctions by the u.s are not going to help anything for sure yeah and i think they're further isolating themselves through um, aggressive foreign policy specifically in the ukraine um you know 
international relations with the EU, with the United States are obviously strained via the sanctions that we're talking about. Um, huge economic uh, ramifications for Russia. Um, and so it, it really depends on how much, how much this, uh, the regime is going to budge on what they do. Um, they really don't want to at all make any concessions in the Ukraine, it seems. And, the, um, and that's where, and go ahead, no. I was to say, and just the, the last thing is, um, based off of our last podcast, we talked about the um, the, uh, the Chinese one uh, one belt one road initiative. Um, the the presence of China setting up this trade, um, this large scale like transnational like trade organization, basically like this road to help their exports. As we talked about back then in that last our last podcast, is going to hurt Russia's influence in the region because China's going to have more of a reach into the states that Russia would normally trade like oil with, per se. Right, and it's like a dilemma between, um, you know, kind of Cold War type Eastern Bloc influence and Western Bloc influence. Uh, which way is Russia going to pivot? Um, naturally, they're going to have to make some concessions on foreign policy if they want to work, work further with the West. And it, it's shown that their economy is hurting because of the sanctions from the West. So, but Putin may be too strong headed to um, make any concessions. So that'll be interesting to see. I think there are definitely some pretty interesting wild cards in the mix. I mean, it's hard to predict the effects of climate change like ever. And then it's also hard to know what Putin's goals will be in foreign policy in the future, which is maybe kind of why the Ukraine crisis is so pivotal in this discussion but we'll see what we get into next right so we've now discussed the russian economy of here and now in 2021 but obviously things weren't always like this per se in the early 1990s russia faced a pretty big economic crisis brought on by the challenges of the collapse of the soviet union and the end of communism the crisis led to the new government instituting shock therapy policies in an attempt to institute a market economy and get things back on track. Shock therapy entailed basically three parts, liberalization of government economic control and removing government price controls, stabilization of the massive inflation by raising interest rates and taxes while also limiting government spending, and finally the privatization of state assets. Igor Gaidar was the acting prime minister in 1992 and the mind behind shock therapy in many ways. Unfortunately, shock therapy in Russia caused a decline in GDP, hyperinflation, and the falling of living standards. It also contributed to the rise of a new oligarchy of former party officials who became massively wealthy. So shock therapy clearly didn't live up to its goals, and Gaidar still has a relatively controversial legacy in Russia today. But so where do you guys think things went wrong here? What was it about shock therapy that failed? Well, I think that um, one thing that's pretty obvious is the price, the monetary policy of Russia did not help anything. I mean, I think that most people should have been able to, most economic um, strategists in Russia should have been able to see that hyperinflation was almost a guarantee because Russian monetary policy before 1993 uh, was price controls, price ceilings on many goods um, and on wages um, because they wanted to keep inflation down and keep the ruble um, worth equi- like uh, at a higher worth, I guess, per ruble. 
uh, compared to like the US dollar. And so when this shock therapy, obviously shock therapy by definition is just like a shock to the system. Like it's not a gradual slope. So basically they just took off all those price controls. Uh, and so overnight what happens is in a market economy, um, you know, you have an equilibrium price and quantity that if the government does not step into the economy at, at all, they will always meet at that equilibrium. And there's no incentive for either the consumer or the producer to move from that equilibrium point. Well, the government had been holding that price, the price ceilings so low, so much lower than the equilibrium price that when they get, got rid of those price ceilings, the market just almost overnight just shot up to that equilibrium point. Um, but wages, wages were not sticky per se. Like they, the, the wages did not also increase overnight. And so what you had is you had, um, you know, the price of bread and all these other goods and commodities, you know, shoot, like hundreds of percents doubling, tripling in the span of a week uh, to a month. And wages were still incredibly low uh, because, you know, obviously you have a con you have contracts and you have, you know, jobs where, you know, the salary's already been deduced. And so the salary's not going to change, even though the prices of like bread and stuff have changed drastically. And so what that ended up happening is, you know, people had to spend, um, one of our articles we we talked about like a month's worth of salary on like a loaf of bread, which is totally unrealistic. It also led to the uh, Russian um, the the Russian government having to subsidize um, a lot of those industries that were now privatized that w that were not producing you know like necessities like bread and that kind of stuff and producing more luxury items because obviously if bread costs a month's worth of salary or a month's worth of wages you're not gonna be able to buy any kind of luxuries so the russians so the russian government had to actually print more money to subsidize co companies that were not producing things that were extremely important to like survival and that increased inflation more because you had more money circulating in the system yeah i definitely agree and just an unhinged um acquiring of state assets obviously those who um, worked a little bit with private enterprise under Gorbachev's reforms and perestroika really benefited because they knew the rules of the game, but regular Russian citizens didn't know the rules of the game and therefore they paid for it. They didn't know how to participate really in the private market in coming from, um, you know, the Soviet union where it was illegal to have private enterprise. And so it was very difficult, um, to make that transition just psychologically for individuals in the market economy to thrive and the laws and the institutions from r the Russian government weren't in place to prevent, um, you know, large scale accumulation of wealth in the hands of only a few people with the oligarchs. I think that's a really good point. Um, I just know from reading about this, that the, a lot of people note at this time that the institutions in Russia were just not, well-built are going to be able to handle the just sort of all this economic changes. And so that's, you know, definitely a huge part of why things just did not go very well. And a lot of them note that even earlier on in the eighties, when Gorbachev had been trying to institute reforms, the institutions then weren't really strong enough to be able to kind of, I don't know, I guess like put forward these reforms in an effective way. So the fact that that like didn't change in the nineties shouldn't necessarily have been a surprise in hindsight now. Right. And I think that, um, you know, Gorbachev's reforms, he was looking towards sustaining 
um, socialism. Obviously, their economy was struggling from stagflation stemming from the 70s, but um, they needed to have some sort of a mixed economy that you see now um, with most socialist countries. Um, but it was too late. Um, but then you come in with Yeltsin and his reformists, um, and it's totally full-fledged capitalism, um, you know, seizure of state assets, just give them out. And the ultra wealthy benefited and the, the great, uh, the, you know, the popular regular citizens all suffered for it. For sure. So I think it's important and necessary to note here the role of the West in shock therapy. Both the U.S. and the International Monetary Fund sent aid as part of the process to Russia, and Western economists played a significant role in issuing recommendations in the development of shock therapy. So do you guys think the West should have played an even bigger role throughout the process, maybe in like giving even more aid than what was given? Or do you think the West maybe should have been more hands-off and maybe not gotten involved at all? Well, the, the, the West um, got involved specifically, I can find the names. Um, it was a Harvard economist named Jeffrey Sachs, Sachs and um, Lawrence Summers, who is a U.S. Undersecretary of the Treasury. Um, and they were the two that were basically told to like, come up with an idea on how to tr- transition um, Russia to a market economy. And he, um, excuse me, uh, the Undersecretary of the Treasury, um, uh, Lawrence Summers had made a, or sorry, excuse me, <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs, the guy from Harvard, the Harvard economist, had made a name for himself for like helping with like bullet with like curb Bolivia's twenty four thousand percent inflation rate, as well as kind of the shock therapies of um, like Poland, for example. Um, but you know what their articles talk about is it's hard to just shock a system as large in landmass as Russia. I mean, there's so much, there's so many different areas in Russia. Like Russia is like, you have, you have extremes of basically any kind of, you know, land that you could think of. You have like the, like very, very densely populated cities. And then you have just no one in like the farmland in Northern Russia. And it's hard to just switch that entire huge landmass over just on an instant Poland Poland did shock therapy and it worked for them but Poland is so much smaller than Russia it is in landmass yeah Poland's like over 50 50 times I think like 55 or so times smaller than Russia in terms of land um, but obviously um, Yeltsin's team was influenced by uh, Western economists and other Western officials um, that were advising this sort of policy it was thought as liberalizing it was thought as to bring more uh liberal democracy to russia they even acknowledged that there would be you know short-term um losses for many but they thought that capitalism would fix itself but again the absence of the legal institutions um just made for corruption and um unregulated capitalism that people hoarded wealth and even moved it elsewhere outside of the country, not trying to benefit um, the entirety of the country, but only seeking to benefit themselves, purely acting in self-interest. And so, yeah, it wasn't um, shock therapy to Russia is much different than shock therapy to Poland or any other place. So um, 
the advice from the West, but the West was really tangled up in all of this. And that goes for, you know, the whole uh, post-Soviet era, um, the West meddling and influencing what Russia does. At the end of the day, they saw Yeltsin as a champion for democracy. Um, but we see that that wasn't the case. So, yeah. And another thing is that, um, you know, the these ec- these economic specialists in the U.S., you know, they under- they understood Russia's economy, but their idea of how economies are supposed to function and all you know all of their thinkings in terms of economic free market was based off of them living in the United States with a free market economy probably their entire lives. I mean, I don't know if they, you know, had it, but, you know, they're certainly very familiar with the free market uh, economies and, you know, the, the West, I feel like had kind of like an idea of, you know, the free market is the best market and we want you to get there. So we want you to get there as fast as possible. And they didn't really have much of a thought for the technical difficulties of switching from, you know, like like the on the ground difficulties, I guess that you don't really think about when you're talking about like long term, like grand strategy. Um, that you know, all the cost that would happen to the Russian people specifically. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Based on my understanding of this time, the West just kind of wanted to ensure Russia would just sort of kind of stay a little bit stable. They weren't necessarily concerned about some great rebuild of the economy at the time. So in that sense, it's, you know, not surprising that there wasn't maybe any sort of more greater, like, interest or impact maybe in that sense from the West. So one of our class readings, the Kotkin chapter, discussed how shock therapy contributed to the creation of new oligarchs as elites benefited off the privatization process. Kotkin gave a few different reasons why shock therapy failed and some of the problems that they think the rise of oligarchs created. And so based on this line of thinking, how much do you guys think of the economic problems in Russia today, including the influence of oligarchs, how much of that can be traced back to the 90s in shock therapy? Well, I think um, at that time it was just a select few that had ties to the government that um, knew how to work a free market system, unlike most citizens in Russia, and they were able to capitalize on that and seize state assets. Um, But uh, when we transition to Putin, um, the economy is still in relative disarray, and he wants to um, reorganize things and reshuffle things, and he cracks down on the oligarchs because they have too much power. They hold too much wealth, and they have too much political power. And Putin wasn't going to stand for that. So I think Putin's oligarchs or the, you know, the few people at the top um, are mainly the Soloviki, you know, the former, um, the retired security and defense um, professionals um, who work closely with Putin um, in his ministries. And then um, other business officials in Russia that, um, benefit from the Putin regime. Um, but it's a different kind of oligarch. So I think that um, it's kind of a, a condition of the state that um, the elites benefit. There are certain elites that benefit from each regime, but those elites change from regime to regime. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't have much to add to what uh, Jacob was saying. I think that are pretty spot on. Awesome. Well, I definitely think it's a fair point because um, we discussed, we've read like from the Treisman reading about how definitely there was definitely a difference between Yeltsin's oligarchs and Putin's oligarchs. And you're exactly right about the influence of security under Putin. And I think there are definitely interesting implications or questions about, you know, the oligarchs of today versus the oligarchs of the past and how, you know, how even Russia can deal with that. But maybe that's something we will discuss later on and maybe too big for us here and now, but definitely an interesting question. So on that note, on a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about the 1993 constitutional crisis and how the legislature disagreed with Yeltsin's economic reforms created that crisis. Does this mean that shock therapy could also be blamed for a lot of the institutional and political problems in Russia, both in the 90s and even into today? So what do you guys think on that note? I, I would personally say yes. As, as we talked about in the first podcast, um, I think that we were almost all in agreement, if not all in agreement, that the reason that the constitutional crisis happened uh, to the extent that it did was because of the economic reforms, not because of Yeltsin's personality or anything like that. Like the economic reforms, like the shock therapy was what kind of kick-started and that was kind of the, the tipping point. That was the main issue um, in the constitutional crisis um, between, bo- between both parties. So I think, you know, as we talked then about the long-term effects of the constitutional crisis of 1993, um, I think that it's safe to say that economic, like um, Yeltsin's triad, economic shock therapy um, did have lasting effects uh, in the political structure and political corruptness or corruptedness of Russia today. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree. And even the Supreme Soviet gave him a chance with his economic reforms. There wasn't a lot of people didn't know um, what to expect, but it was the basis um, for the rift between Yeltsin and the parliament. And um, as far as the new constitution, obviously greater executive powers and Putin has continued that trend of continually amending the constitution for the sake of presidential power. Um, And it's become increasingly focused on Putin and his regime and the continuity of his regime and the strength of his regime, Um, the strength of the state um, in particular. And yeah, it's just um, quite uh, corrupt. And really that set the stage, I believe, for um, presidential dominance in Russia. I think that's a really fair point. It's just kind of interesting to me to think about how this, you know, really dramatic event like the 1993 constitutional crisis, you know, it had its roots in this really complicated economic, like, policies and, like, problems that Russia was going through. And, you know, we've talked about it, how, you know, it seems to me like it was just like, you know, what a mess, what a complicate, like, complicated mess of things. And it's just interesting that that led to then, like, a really dramatic event and then, the ramifications of that can still be felt in Russia, even down to today. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
on that note, do you guys have any final thoughts? It appears we've all been pretty on the same page about this topic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's hard to really argue that the economic shock therapy um, push by Yeltsin didn't have lasting effects, both in the economic struggles of Russia as well as the political, um, the current political struggles of Russia. Um, I mean, I, I I think that the I think it's pretty clear cut, in my opinion, honestly, that. Um, all, all like all roads in terms of the the corruption uh, of of Putin's Russia today really do go back to the um, or President Yeltsin realizing that we that Russia could not stay a socialist country and survive economically. Yeah, I think the um, economic shock therapy has um, little to no economic ramifications to this day, but a lot of political ramifications, obviously stemming from the 1993 constitutional crisis, as we said, because um, uh, Putin was able to rebuild the economy on um, the commodities boom in the early 2000s, um, the rising prices of oil, but after the 2008 crisis, that kind of went down. And then we've seen oil prices go down and stay down and Russia's economy kind of goes as the price of oil goes as their huge export economy in terms of energy. But also with the sanctions, um, with uh, the conflict in the Ukraine. Um, so the economy has changed a lot under shock therapy. And it's also um, a necessary thing to say, you know, what else could have happened? What else could happen with shock therapy? There could have been obviously a more... Um, easier transition from a command economy to a market economy or with more um, market influence. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to say. Um, and the um, economic um, ramifications um, really lasted through the nineties and then Putin was able to build it back up. And I also think that that's something that could have helped um, in terms of, the immediate economic fallout of the shock therapy is if Russia had anticipated the 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 price of, the price um, control being lifted, shifting the, the the prices of goods and necessary goods um, to that equilibrium point. Because uh, I think that if they had maybe anticipated that and you know had anticipated giving you know wage hikes to um, to the citizens of Russia, yes, that would have increased inflation, but maybe people wouldn't have been starving in the streets if that had happened. Absolutely. Pretty blunt way to put it, I guess. But, um, yeah, for sure. Definitely. We've touched on a lot of different things, some pretty interesting thoughts from everyone all around. So I think on that note, we'll wrap it up here. We just want to thank whoever may be listening to us ramble on and on about this topic and hooray for spring see you guys see you later this has been in the shadow of the kremlin a podcast by k-state poli students we'd like to thank both our hosts and many guests for this segment as well as our listeners we'll see you for the next installment
Звучит твой ласковый свет.